Dave, do you want to kick us off uh, with this episode? Absolutely. Uh, so everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy over on the other side of me, Vlad. Uh, we are on episode 19. I'm sure most of you didn't think we would make it there. I'm not sure we thought we would make it there. We have a very special guest uh, today, as you can probably see him smiling if you guys are watching live, uh, Zach Stank of Phoenix Contact. And we were having some conversations and you know what, Let, let's just go ahead and, and jump in because this is, I think, going to be a very different episode th than the previous episode. So, so, Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks, Vlad. I'm glad to be here. And I'm glad I'm very special, not just regular special. You, you are very <laughs> special. You, you, That's you what are my mom always told me. That's good. That's good. See, we're, we're helping to, to reinforce that uh, for, for, yeah. for children of all ages. But no, thank you so much for, uh, for coming aboard, Zach. And as you were describing to, to Vlad and I, can, can you give us a little bit of your background, uh, talk about what you did before Phoenix Contact and what you guys at Phoenix are doing now? Because it's so much more th than I think many of us realize. Yeah, sure. I, and that's a pretty, I'll try to paint in a really broad stroke here because I don't take the entire time going through my history, but I'm a trained chemical engineer. I went to the Pennsylvania State University, graduated with my BS back in 2008. Um, job market wasn't great back in 2008, at least here in the States. I don't know uh, for you guys, but it wasn't, it wasn't awesome. Uh, the only thing that was going on was basically the troop surge in uh, Afghanistan, I believe at that time. And so I, I found work at a, um, a defense contractor and I started there doing quality inspection and first article tests of different vehicles uh, for the army, uh, for Navy SEALs, uh, it's basically all the MRAP program if you're familiar with anything um, military. If not, that's okay. I can throw all the all the initializations at you and <laughs> that, that, I don't know that it'll mean anything. But uh, I did that for about three years and then I joined Phoenix Contact in 2011 as a safety specialist uh, for the marketing group here in the US, or based out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I was a safety specialist for about eight and a half years. And now I'm transitioning into the product marketing manager for control safety and IO. Um, so not just safety anymore, we're also, I'm talking about control. Of course, our PLC Next, which you can see, I got the PLC Next shirt on, we got the PLC Next sitting in the corner, hanging out over here. And then all of our great IO products, uh, especially Axioline SE that just launched earlier this year. So we got a lot of, like you said, Dave, a ton of great stuff happening at Phoenix Contact on our automation side. We really appreciate no, no, you joining absolutely. us. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Zach, as a, I've got many questions. Obviously, that's a very you know short <laughs> bio, I feel, of the yeah. extensive many years. Um, but... Uh, I want to start at the beginning, right? So you've graduated with a chemical engineering background. Yeah. I'm curious, like, how did the transition into a marketing role took place? What kind of maybe interests drove that? What kind of, um, you know, like, obviously, like the career shift or the, um, the company somewhat influenced that. But what passions did you have that, like, influenced that change? That's a good question, because it is a, a, a dynamic leap, I would say, from engineering to <laughs> marketing, especially chemical engineering. I, so when I was in high school, I always wanted to be a teacher. And okay. all of my teachers told me not to be a teacher, which was kind of disheartening. Um, but uh, one of my teachers, my chemistry teacher, 
Mr. Leuchner, if he's, I don't think he's watching this. I don't know why he would be, but if, if he ever does watch this, he's the one that inspired me to go to chemical engineering because he said it was the hardest thing I could do. Uh, so I, I went to school to do the hardest thing I could do. I had my eye on nanotechnology and uh, renewables and things like that. And like I said, when I got, when I got out, it uh, wasn't a great job market. So I, I went into defense where I could get, you know, cut my teeth as an engineer, work in quality, uh, do a lot of the drawing stuff that I had never done before, um, you know, get some experience. And then actually my, my wife, my wife's colleague uh, was friends with somebody at, at Phoenix Contact and they were having a job fair. Um, and so I showed up to the job fair with my best suit and tie right from work. So I, you know, unshowered, you know, really sweaty, but in a suit and tie. And uh, there was 400 other people there. And I, if, <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys have ever visited Phoenix Contact Harrisburg. It's a wonderful facility. We've expanded a lot. The lobby probably holds comfortably maybe 200 people. And there were oh, so the career fair people. was at the facility? So it, it was at the facility, yeah. Nice. And, and the, the strangest thing that I ever, I've ever seen in my life, you know, coming from defense, you know, it's all about timing and getting things right. And it's a very high stress environment to Phoenix contact where employees were staying after hours to do a career fair and everybody had a smile on their face. And I, <laughs> I was like, what is this? Like, if you told me to stay after my old job, I'd have been like, you're crazy. I'm not, why would I stay an extra hour to tell people to come, come work here? But it was amazing. I met my boss, uh, Ira Sharp, who I think you both have talked to before uh, during that career fair. So he actually, I wasn't there for marketing, but I was there for quality and, you know, Ira got promoted to, to what my position is now. He remembered speaking to me, brought me in for an interview and, you know, we just, we hit it off from there. And then, you know, I always wanted to do teaching and this is marketing is basically teaching people, you know, teaching grownups, teaching, um, you know, engineers, how new products work. So it fit right in my wheelhouse, it fulfilled some of my dreams. You know, I'm not, I don't know if I'd really want to go to a class of like 10th graders right now. Uh, I'm sure that's not great, but sometimes adults could be 10th graders. So it's not all bad. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think like as a side note, you know, it's a really positive, I would say like, it's a big green flag when you have a company that hosts uh, a career fair, like at their facility, you know what I mean? Cause you get to see the employees, you get to interact with them. You get to, I think like, that's a really um, interesting experience. And I think like more companies should take that approach in, in yeah. my opinion. Cause I think like getting the tour of the facility, obviously once you are officially interviewing, you typically get that, but getting that beforehand without any, I would say like commitments is, is really nice. Yeah. I'll say one thing too about that, you know, Coming from the defense industry, I, it was a very large company I worked for. I think we had 10,000 employees in the U.S. or something like that, maybe even more. And I had only ever met the, it was like the VP of my section twice. And it was, it wasn't really, I wouldn't call it a meet. We had, you know, he was in front of everybody talking. When I went to the career fair at Phoenix Contact, the very first person greeting us at the door was the president of US, the Phoenix Contact USA. Jack Naley, oh. shaking every single person's hand, walking them to the company. So like from the start, Phoenix Contact was put right in the door. I was like, this is an awesome place to work. And it, it still continues to be that way. Jack, Jack is a fantastic leader of our company. He'll learn your name. It, it's ama He's an amazing guy. He'll have your name down probably in like a week of working there. You know, you'll see him in the halls. He'll say hi to you. He remembers all these details. It, but it, it's just a company culture that's unmatched. And I love working here. Oh, that's really cool. It's uh, 
definitely not something that you'd see uh, in most places. So that's really cool. Well, moving on, I guess, to the um, to your start at Phoenix Contact. So you said you got involved in safety, right? That's so right. you were a product manager for safety devices, field engineer. What was the what was the role? So the Phoenix Contact, we called a product specialist, but essentially in any other company would be a product manager. Um, so I was responsible for um, safety here in the U.S. So safety relays, configurable safety relays, safety PLCs, uh, going through all of that stuff. So it, it was a, a truly intriguing time to come in. Phoenix Contact was just releasing a product called Safety Bridge to the market. Um, it's a really unique technology. I won't you know, we're gonna have a lot of opportunities to diverge into the weeds here. Mm -hmm. So I'll spare you guys. Uh, safety Bridge is essentially allowing you to do safety without a safety PLC. Um, and it, it's a really unique uh, pitch to the market. So I, I started and cut my teeth on that. And then, you know, through, oh gosh, through the last eight years, it's been PSR Mini, the world's smallest safety relay. Um, then, you know, now we have door switches. Finally, we're coming up with e-stops. And, uh, you know, I'm still still nose to the grindstone on safety, uh, but now just uh, working and, and broadening a bit with the rest of my team. Yeah, and I think like safety, um, obviously like machine safety, just personnel safety in general is not a topic that I feel is discussed often enough. And uh, speaking, you know, from personal experience in manufacturing, there's a very wide range of facilities, even in the U.S., right? And at a different standard, at a different, um, I would say, culture. Um, and again, like I would say, like that's a word that gets thrown in fairly loosely. But I think culture is extremely important when it comes to safety. So I'd be curious to hear maybe your thoughts on you know, some, some of the things that you have seen and also some of the ways that standards are adopted. I, you know, speaking with you learned that there's a difference between how U.S. views some of these standards and how Europe views some of these standards. And I think it's important for, again, speaking from experience, I don't think that everyone has that knowledge. Could you give us maybe an idea also like of those differences and how they're applied um, in the two continents? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the U.S., when, when, you, when you think safety in the U.S., the first thing that people say is OSHA, which is the truth. When you think of safety in your workplace, you should think of OSHA. And OSHA is responsible uh, for safety here in the U.S. Um, but OSHA was created by an act of the government, our executive and, and congressional branches and legislative branches. And, you know, that was in the late mid-late 70s. Um, there's been some updates to it. Uh, but it, it's kind of what OSHA has as a requirement is law. And when it comes to machine safety, there's only eight or nine actual pieces of, you know, requirements in the document. And it's, if you're interested, it's OSHA.gov. You can go look at the standards. It's uh, 1910 subpart O is machine guarding. So I know someone's out there fact checking me as we speak. I think it's nine, uh, including the general uh, standard. But it goes into a lot of stuff of like cooperage and some wheel grinding. And a lot of it is from when it initially started. There were some additions in the 80s. But OSHA has kind of taken a stance of, you know, we're not going to incorporate all these different standards into the law. It's going to be a more uh, retroactive type thing when it comes to machine safety. So, yes. Sorry, it's like 1910 dot? Uh, 1910 subpart O. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Just so I can uh, link to it. 
Oh yeah, I, I, I have links somewhere. I can find it for you then. Um, and, and we can send it out after we're done. But so, so OSHA, I mean, they do a lot of great things. I'm, I'm not, this is not a, a podcast to, to get down on OSHA or anything like that. Um, there you go. It's in there now. So uh, 1910. So um, OSHA will typically come in and, and visit a facility, whether there's been an accident or there it's a, you know, a standard visit. And the majority of what they go after is, or, or what they find is, scaffolding and ladders, MSDS violations, trips, falls, and hazards, uh, those types of things. And of the top 10 that they find, usually around nine or 10, I think this year it's number nine, is gonna be your machine guarding. And typically machine guarding happens after the fact. Um, because what OSHA does is they have a, a general use clause basically that says, if it's not said in our standard, you basically have to follow whatever nationally recognized standard is available. So you have standards like the National Electric Code NFPA 79. You have, um, you know, ANSI B11 standards, B1119 being the general safety standard. You have RIA, uh, for example, the Robotics Institute uh, Association is coming up with standards specifically for robots. So it's it's basically on the owner of the machine to say, okay, I'm, I'm following all these. And that's where the big difference is between Europe and the US is the... <laughs> The U.S. market is the owner of the machine is responsible for safety. And in Europe, it's a, you know, whoever makes the machine or the, the manufacturer of the machine is responsible. And that's when you get CE marking. So if I produce something in Europe, I have to put a CE marking on it, which means that I followed the machinery directive, which basically calls out two different standards, uh, 13849 and 62061 are the two machinery standards that you can follow. Um, sorry, it's alphabet soup sometimes when I talk about safety, but what that means in Europe is that from pen to paper to decommissioning of the machine, the person that designs and manufactures that machine is responsible for the safety of that machine. So when you buy a machine in Europe, you're basically buying that CE marking that says that someone has done their due diligence to make sure that it's following certain standards of machine. And it comes with all the things you need to do for maintenance until the end of life of that machine. In the United States, it's not that way. Um, you know, you would assume that you're buying something that has safeguarding on it, but you only, only requirement is what the customer requires. So if I'm a purchaser and I'm looking at two different machines, one's $1,100, the other one's $1,300. And the difference is, you know, a different door connector. Um, you know, maybe I'll go for the $1,100 one, but right. you know, hopefully that purchaser is looking at it a little bit deeper. The company is looking at it as, you know, a requirement for what machine that they need. And that's where you, you get into the culture side of things. You know, safety is a culture thing. You need to have a functional safety management system or, or um, process in your company to make sure the machines that you're incorporating into, your, into where you're at are following your guidelines. Otherwise, you're going to end up machines that don't have any safety on them at all or just kind of negligent with, with safety. Yeah. And as you said, I think it's very tempting to... Uh... I guess, cut the, the corner, so to speak, on safety devices and equipment, right? Because it's yeah. it's something that you don't realize until obviously there is an incident and um, it's easy, again, like upfront to save on that cost. So, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, no one really thinks about it, but, you know, paying an extra $200 for a safety relay or something like that seems like a lot upfront. Um, but, you know, the back-end cost of an OSHA fine, so OSHA is going to fine you or whatever they find, you know, especially if you've been negligent or, you know, this is a recurring problem, you know, OSHA will find you. And then you have, 
you know, civil costs, lawyers, you know, whatever happens uh, in, in a civil case, if that does come up. So safety can cost a lot on the back end, but it, it, a lot of people can't see it. So it's important to, to know what you're doing, do it right, you know, look at your machines, do a hazard analysis or risk assessments on them and figure out if you're protecting them the way you need to be. Yeah. And I think this connects really well to, uh, you know, the earlier point that we talked about, which is education, right? Because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if you're designing the machine or installing the machine or validating the machine, you're most likely going to stand, set the standards for the people who are going to operate that machine. Right. And so they may not always have the same knowledge that you do when it comes to the automation equipment. And so it's very important to educate them on the best practices on how to, again, I've seen many different things in, uh, in my career involving like bypasses or people changing the wiring, or again, like bypassing your e-stops when it's not, uh, when it's not operating. So there's going to be a lot of things that, um, you know, as, as we said, like get cut, so to speak, in production as well. So it's really important to educate your people, I think, um, and set that culture where, again, the, the message that I've heard in certain companies is nothing we do is worth getting hurt over. Mm-hmm. And so like that's their number one priority, right, over making product um, this very minute. Yeah, and, and, I, and we talked about this uh, a little bit before, but it's also an alignment of goals from mm-hmm. you know, not not just the, the top executive level, but all the way down to the person doing the assembly. You know, if, if your goal as, you know, an executive level team is no injuries, and you also have a goal of being profitable and making money and, and getting product out the door, you need to make sure those goals align all the way down and you're not getting, you know, managers pushing their team to, to be unsafe or to rush through things. Otherwise you're not going to have alignment and you're going to end up with safety problems on your plant floor. And I, yeah. uh, before we continue, I just want to let you guys know that I, a random thunderstorm has a, a, approached my house. And if I lose power and drop off, I apologize. It hasn't happened, but this would be the day, you know, that it does me happen. and Dave will have to fill in. <laughs> oh, that, that's a really good excuse, Zach. Well, yeah, like, like, Zach's all prepped and he's like, I've only got 26 minutes in me, guys. So in about 90 seconds, when I go black and you can't get to me, it's the, it's the thunderstorm. I, I like it. That's exactly. the best right, yeah. excuse we've had live yet. Thank, thank yeah, you, Zach. Once you give me a hard question, my, my video is going to go black and I'll stop talking. So. <laughs> ah. Oh, th- th- that's amazing. That's amazing. But so, so I, I like the point that you, you had talked about Zach with, with marketing being education and we haven't had a lot of other marketers on the show. Would you mind kind of extrapolating your thoughts on, you know, the goal of marketing to is to be education and how you guys um, utilize that at Phoenix in order to help kind of educate the market with what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so when I first started coming with an engineering background, having worked a little bit with quality, you know, quality, you get an opportunity to kind of tell people what they're supposed to do and they have to listen to you. So, um, you know, my first couple of visits into a customer, it was, you know, here's a product. It does this, this, and this, it costs this much. How much can I sell you? And that's not marketing. That's first of all, that's, that's being very naive of what people are doing and, no one wants to be told what to do either. So at, when you come from a place of educating and, and honestly, it's more about asking questions. So if I come in with an agenda and say, hey, I want to push this product here, buy this, buy this, buy this. A lot of times I've found when I go out and talk to customers, it's not, 
hey, here's my newest widget. Maybe that's why we got the meeting. You know, uh, my local salesperson did a good job, you know, hunting and finding things, but I'll ask more questions than I'll, I'll answer most of the time. I'll say, hey, what are you guys doing? What, what, you know, are you using the existing control system for this? How are you doing that? I see you have multiple e-stops here. Are they connected together, you know? And, and the more you listen to the customer, you can get a, a sense for one, what their culture is at the company, but then you can also get a sense of, you know, what are their pain points? Why, why are they doing multiple e-stops? You know, a lot of times you'll see safety added to a machine because something happened or a customer got upset about something or, you know, what, what have you. So getting that background story and figuring out what caused the problem or what was causing the problem, you can start to work for a solution to really help somebody understand maybe what's going on. It's good to have a different set of eyes um, at looking at different things. And then at, the more I got into it, the more I saw, you know, Vlad, I know you said everything, you've seen everything. But I've seen some really terrible safety circuits in my life and some that I, you know, immediately told the people I was unwilling to go and visit, you know, with what they were doing. So <laughs> there, there's times where I can say from experience, you know, you probably don't want to do that because, you know, you're thinking about it this way. That's a very valid way of thinking about it. But you also forgot A, B and C or D, E and F or when the customer gets it, they're probably going to use it this way. And, and when it comes to, you know, just getting the knowledge out there specifically with safety, it's been, it's been good for me because there's a lot of the knowledge gap within the U S about safety and requirements. And it's, it's honestly something that people are uncomfortable talking about. So that, that has really opened the door to a lot of different customers and just wanting to have a conversation. A lot of times it's just, Hey, I have this silly question. Why do I need to be category four, you know, or what does category four even mean? Or why is there stop category and safety category? And what's the difference between the two? So that's- well, Can that's you elaborate I... a little bit on those? Cause I'm like, to be <laughs> well, honest so, with yeah, you, like sorry. I've been following the standard but I couldn't tell you exactly like why, uh, you know, we are going to those categories and what yeah. like it truly entails. So the category uh, system was uh, 954, which is the old standard for safety. It's still used in 13849, which is the international version of safety. And uh, B1119, I believe, still references category. But essentially, there's category B1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, B1 and 2 are all single-channel designs, so no redundancy. And then 3 and 4 are redundancy either with some monitoring or with everything being monitored. So that's the difference between safety category. And then stop category is uh, a zero. Stop category zero is instantaneous loss of power. So I hit an e-stop, all the power removes from my machine. Uh, stop category one is delayed loss of power. So I hit an e-stop. I have some type of timer and a braking system that'll stop motion. And then I remove uh, power. And then stop category two is no loss of power, but just a braking system. So essentially it's not an emergency stop. It would just be a delayed stop with no loss of power. Um, so that, that's the difference between those. <laughs> and why would you, I guess, like, why would you care as an end user or let's say a, a machine manufacturer about the, the different uh, categories? Or well, so, pick, like it's based on your evaluation of safety? Yeah, I mean, it's referenced in some of the standards too. So we'll, we'll talk about a stop category zero versus a category one and where it's practical and when you need it. The biggest thing is it, it'll tell you how to design your machine in some cases. So if I have a large, massive rotating object, uh, an industrial washer or a huge flywheel, and I hit an e-stop and just remove power instantaneously, the inertia of that wheel is going to continue for a long time. And I won't actually achieve a stop for a very long time, depending on how fast it was moving. So 
in, in many cases, a stop category one, a delayed stop with some type of braking on it is a much better stop than a con completely uncontrolled stop. So th that's kind of why we do that category. Then the other categories, and, and the reason they come up together is because it, it's usually safety and category, and you have to define which one you're talking about. But single channel versus redundancy is a way to ensure hardware fault tolerance on your machine mm -hmm. and in your circuits. So it basically is how good, how good am I designing it from a practical standpoint, not from a component standpoint, but from like an engineering design standpoint. I mean, today, would you ever recommend single channel designs in 2021? I guess I personally, I, I think from what I understood, they're grandfathered in if they're like at a facility, but once you make modifications, you have to go to dual channel design, right? Uh, so that's, you're bringing in a whole other standard and I, I know we have uh, 30 minutes in already, but I will <laughs> say that there is a grandfather clause within the process industry about, you know, maintaining single channel. Um, and, and I would say to say that single channel doesn't exist or can't be done would be, my answer to that would be, well, what was your risk assessment? So if your risk assessment says that the, the risk of somebody getting hurt um, is very low or the chance of the machine you know, getting to a dangerous situation is very low, then oftentimes you could find yourself where you just need a simple e-stop with one channel to a safety relay going to a motor starter. You know, it might be a very slow moving, I don't know, a bubble machine, you know, for instance, maybe somebody gets stung in the eyes a little bit, or, you know, if you're doing a, a very slow, um, you know, like, let's say it's a, a lacquer type machine, right? And you're just kind of spraying some lacquer on something, and you know it's not very intensive. Nobody can really get in. And then a stop cat or a category one system might be okay. But it all comes down to your your risk assessment and then the risk graph that you walk through, and that and and what you can do with. No, I mean, uh, uh, like I have many questions on safety because it's an interesting topic. Again, and having like an expert in that domain is uh, is really interesting. Like I've said, oh, yeah. I've seen many different things and. I like I've implemented safety circuitry, but uh, again, like some of these standards are not, um, I guess, like complete knowledge to me. Right. So, yeah, it's, well, it's good I'll tell you what, when you guys get to episode 30, because I know you'll get there, uh, I'd be more than happy to come back on and we can take a specific like, you know, machine okay. safety topic and I'll, I'll dive in deep with you guys. We'll go a full hour. I mean, the, the training I typically give for safety from Phoenix Contact is a two day training. So okay. yeah, we go through a lot of stuff. We will make you regret that offer, Zach. <laughs> hey, anytime to talk about safety, I will never regret. I mean, there, there's times where people have to tell me to stop talking. So <laughs> I will never, ever regret being on anything. No, no. I, I was going to say one of the reasons why I think you're very special is because you not only, well, I, maybe it's because you're talking about safety in a positive light, right? Yeah. Maybe it's the fact that you're willing to say that you spent eight and a half years working in, in safety, whereas I feel like most of the time in industry, folks make jokes about safety or about OSHA. One, it is obviously very important and it is here to help make sure that mm -hmm. people don't die. And yeah. is here because people have been seriously injured or died in incidents in the past. So, yeah. and, um, you know, it's, yes. it, it has a bad rap from both sides too. I mean, people mm -hmm. don't like paying for it, but also operators on the floor sometimes see it as a frustration, mm -hmm. man, they put this gate in, I can't get my work done now. Now I have to bypass stuff. So it, it can be from both sides. And, and to me, the best safety circuit is one that you hardly ever use that you never see 
right? And it doesn't interrupt anybody's workflow at all. That's like the ideal circuit. And then, you know, nobody gets hurt. You know, the, the operators aren't looking for a way around it. They're not trying to get through it or make it their day better. It should be done in a way that makes everybody's work better and safer. Absolutely. Dave, did you have a follow-up to that? I, 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 gonna... I did. So, so I, 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 like Vlad, I think I have many follow-ups, but, but I feel like we should leave some of the safety questions till yeah. episode 30 when, <laughs> uh, when everyone comes back in eight or 10 weeks or 11 weeks uh, for episode 30 also with Zach, who is, um, in addition to the first person to give us the best excuse of why we may lose him, also the first person to, to call out his second episode. So, so thank I mean, you I'll, for that, Zach. I'll shoot my shot any day, man. No. I don't know. I could do. I'll be on it for episode forty-two. What do you want to talk about on episode forty? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Episode forty is so many episodes away. We've got many yeah. episodes to fill between now and thirty, much less now and forty. But I know. <laughs> um, uh, I, I would like to take at least a few minutes and, and talk about the, the the emblem of the shirt that you're wearing and that uh, th that little very hard to find kind of starter set behind you and what you yeah. guys are doing with PLC Next. Can you kind of give everyone who is not initiated with the PLC Next uh, fandom and craze that feels mm -hmm. like has has had this groundswell of uh, of support in the last you know six months or a year? Kind of an update on what you guys are doing. Yeah, sure. And this is where the education part comes in because I'm going to, I'm not trying to sell you on it. I'm just trying to tell you what it is in the easiest way possible. So uh, PLC Next is an open uh, PLC platform. And when we say open, we truly mean open. It, it, it is a IEC 61131 programming language uh, controller. So if you're used to doing ladder logic or you want to do, you know, structured text or you want to do flowchart or you want to do um, function block diagram, you can do that on a PLC next. So it's just standard industrial uh, controller. Uh, but when we say open, we really mean three different things. We mean that it's Linux, it's IIoT ready, and it's revolutionary. So when I say Linux, I, I mean that it's actually a Linux box as well. So out of the box, it's got Yocto Linux on it. You can program in C Sharp, you know, Python, whatever you want to your, your heart's content, you have full access to the Linux kernel and you can make it your own Linux box. Just like, uh, you know, I, I, I always see these uh, young, young programmers coming out of college that have had access to Arduinos and, you know, Raspberry Pi. And I think what I would have done, and, and, you know, and just killed to have that time when I was in college. And now you can come and use those skills that you learned. Maybe you, you programmed your first robot in C Sharp, you know, you can come and do that and upscale directly into industry now because you have a Linux box that's hardened for industrial capabilities. Plus it has IO connectivity on it. So you don't have to worry about finding a way to get IO on it. Um, we say it's IIoT ready because it is IIoT ready. And when we say that, we mean it's ready to connect to the cloud. I mean, industry 4.0 is here, you know, buzzwords galore. Everybody wants to get their data to the cloud. And the hardest thing to do right now is existing PLCs, existing PACs, um, legacy systems, it's very difficult to take that and get it into the cloud that you need. Um, and with PLC Next, we've enabled function blocks uh, that allow you to do it uh, right on, right on the, the software. PLC Next Engineer is the free software, by the way, for programming it. So you can go and download that from phoenixcontact.com. Um, you can, uh, yeah, free, free is always good when it comes to programming. So 
that you have those function blocks. You can do it through Linux too. So we have guides on the PLC Next community, which is www.plcnext-community.net. Um, there's guides on how to get to Azure, um, uh, AWS, Google IIoT. I know they're working on Alibaba Cloud right now. So we, we want this to be future facing and, and getting out there uh, into the IIoT realm. And then the last part that, that we talked about was revolutionary. And the reason it's revolutionary is one, because of the first two things that we talked about, because you really couldn't find something that would do that in a PLC form factor existing uh, currently, but also it allows you to do that IEC 611.31 in the high, high level language computation side by side. So let's say I have you know, existing engineers that are used to doing ladder logic, they wanna do all their programming in that. You can do that in the high-level language integration, either you know through um, you know a, a third-party app um, or going in through the Linux, you can do it that way, and basically have new generation, old generation of engineering working side by side, working to a similar goal. And it's really opened up a lot of different doors. Like there's things that you don't think that you couldn't, you know, I don't even. It's hard to explain things that you didn't even know you couldn't do because you could, just couldn't do them, and you never thought you could that you can now do on a PLC. I mean, it, that we have uh, customers sending data directly to a cloud and then immediately showing it on, a, on an iPhone. So they get, you know, status. They could be out kayaking or something like that and get status of a machine. So, and, and the big push for us, uh, you know, honestly, the, the last 18 months has been tough for everybody, but in industry, it's been a lot of work from home, you know, remote maintenance, not allowing people into the facility, only having certain people out there. And IIoT has only been pushed harder and harder um, through, you know, our industrial capabilities. So the, the ability to have a PLC that sends information out to the cloud so that you can see what's going on and, and honestly see from your email or from a dashboard you have set up on AWS and maintain and see all your machines, uh, you know, not just at one plant, you can have several plants reporting in if you're using AWS or Azure. So, I mean, that's, I think that's why it's got a lot of people, you know, jumping on board because when we say open, we, we really do mean open. We, we want you to take this. We want you to be a Linux person and use this, but we also want that IEC 611.31 minded person to use this as well. So it's a little bit of everything for everybody. And one important point I do want to, um, I guess, discuss, well, the first point I would like to discuss in a little bit more detail that you've mentioned, it's the accessibility, right? So now that you've got the PLC that you can program in C Sharp, you said Python, um, in these higher level languages that people, um, let's say, learn outside of traditional PLC programming, mm -hmm. I think you're opening up the candidate pool for, again, your engineers, your uh, like plant support personnel to a much larger population, right? Like, so in the past, you'd have to be trained in, let's say, like ladder logic, and that's the only thing that we learn. And you have to really understand the I would say like the low level hardware versus now it becomes a lot more accessible. And I can like, for example, I can speak from experience again, I learned on C, right? So C, C++, let's say with, with the added classes and a lot of features, but in a traditional electrical engineering sense on C. So even when I write ladder logic per se, I still converted in my head from C to ladder logic. 
right? Yeah. So I think like having the ability to program in the native language of choice. And again, I think this goes back to having just the tools, right? Required. You can still program in ladder logic if that's what you learned. Yeah. Um, and again, people will be brought up through like different, again, if you come through maybe a technical school and you learn ladder logic as the first uh, language, then you're probably going to think in that more than in C or Python, but a lot of engineers are taught in those languages. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of sh industry shifts are going to happen in the next five years to a decade, I would say. Yeah, absolutely, Vlad. I mean, just to reiterate your point, back in 2019, we got a summer intern. Uh, so my, my coworker, Yuri uh, Cemarelli, who uh, may be watching, he may not be watching, but he, uh, he's our, our PLC Next guru. He's our guy when it comes to control here in the U.S. He hired an intern, and the intern was a, a comp sci major. And, you know, it, I, I don't know if I've ever heard of anybody hiring a comp sci major into, you know, a traditionally electrical engineering role, especially for control. And, you know, we, we talked, the first time we talked, I was telling them, so, you know, what, what are you used to programming in? Have you done any ladder logic, you know, Rockwell type stuff? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. I was, he's like, I don't, what is ladder logic? We sat him down. And like you said, Vlad, I mean, it's experience. I mean, his whole experience was in high level language. He knew Python, he knew Java, he knew C. And so like him just sitting at a Rockwell machine and going through and doing ladder logic because that's what we do a lot of our demos on when we're talking about our IO concepts is, you know, he really struggled and, and he was able to get a, by the end of the day, he was able to get basically a contact to open, right? And then we said, hey, we, I know why Yuri hired you. First of all, I wouldn't have let him do it without, you know, Yuri passing it by me first, but I know why he did this. And it, it's to prove a point. And we gave him essentially that starter kit back there. And we said that we have a trade show coming up called Pack Expo. And we want to do something really cool to show off just, you know, how open this is. And so we spitballed for a bit and he, you know, I think Yuri came up with it is, hey, let's do the, you know, the, the you compare two images and you do the what's different in the picture. So he went on and he found a, a you know, a free to use, basically, uh, I think it was C. A, a free to use C already developed, you know, photo hunt app, essentially, uh, put it on the Linux side of the machine, and then added some of his own code to make things work. We loaded up some Phoenix contact images, and we had a photo hunt at, at Pack Expo running on PLC Next. Like, and he, I think he got done with it in like a week. The whole thing was completely finished in a week, including, you know, wiring things up. And that's, to me, that's absolutely nuts. Like, you, yeah. you send somebody out in the industry, typically the first six months on the job is you're teaching them how to learn the new language that you, they have to use because whatever they learned in school was inadequate or they don't use it. And now you can have somebody coming out of school, you know, and I, I believe he was a junior at the time, coming out and programming a machine to do things that we never thought were possible. I mean, we have another employee, uh, Muhammad Hashmi, who's now a full-time employee with us, but he developed a Pong game using, I think it was 64 LED lights. He individually wired each LED light to, to an IO card and imported a, a Python-based Pong game. And you can go on our, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send you guys a link. You can go on uh, to our LinkedIn. We have videos of people playing Pong on a PLC Next using just LEDs and some IO. So it, it, it truly is remarkable. Like that's when I said, you don't know the things that you can't do because you never were able to do them. Like this is the ideas that we've had where it's like, what could we do? You know, and, and honestly, everything's yeah. open now because 
because we have these high level languages in there, you can do whatever you want. I mean, and you have the experience of the Arduino and the Raspberry Pi students coming in. I mean, really, whatever you want to try and do now, it, the sky's the limit. Or should I say the cloud is the limit? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And, I, you know, that, that's another very important, um, I guess, idea I haven't thought about, but we're going to benefit, I feel, from a lot of these repositories of, uh, of libraries, right, that are available in the traditional software engineering space that I feel, again, for in controls for one reason or another, maybe that machines are so custom, there's not that much sharing of, uh, you know, code, right? So when you go to a, a new site or a new facility, there, there's rarely some repository that you can pull, let's say, a time control scheme from, or even like a PID loop that's specific to a to a process. But I think a lot of those problems have been solved in the traditional software space. And so now with having these PLCs that can access those libraries and use them, you'd be able to much more easier access them and like utilize them in application. And at the end of the day, I think it's going to be like saving you time and money at the implementation stage, but also in, in many other uh, areas. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's, it's beyond just simple machine building too. And I, I don't want to throw shade by saying simple, but if you go to, you know, the process industry too, the, the OPATH initiative that's happening right now, OPAF uh, and the OPAS group, that are working towards that, I mean, they're trying to find a way to make uh, independent hardware so, so that you can take off the shelf hardware and work wherever you want, whatever you want and do your DCS control platform that way. And, you know, 10 years ago, you would have said something like that and people would have laughed you out of the, you know, they would have laughed you off the property and said, this is absurd. We're never gonna go open source. We're never gonna do any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like that's, in, that's incredibly insane. And you know, it's happening. It's happening right now. And, and if you're not getting on the open train, you're probably going to be left, you know, to, to sit and do whatever you could do, but everybody wants to be open, er, open source. Now, like it used to be a curse word, open source. People would be like, Oh, I can't believe you're going open source. Like there's security vulnerabilities. There's a million things, but if you're open source and you have a well-dedicated group behind it, I mean, you're going to find vulnerabilities faster than any closed source, you know, product you could find. Uh, you're going to have updates constantly going out. You're going to have a huge user base putting in new things, doing no, new ideas, developing new products. I mean, it, it, it literally is going to take off faster than you could probably think about it. And, and that's what we're really looking forward to and what we're starting to see already with PLC Next. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Dave, what do you think? Yes. So, so I, I like what you're saying, Zach, and, and Vlad, I agree with what you're saying. I, I certainly see a lot of people and be it machine builders or be it SIs, build more repos and libraries of code that works well so that they can reuse it. And more tools like Zach is talking about and PLC Next behind him are going to give us opportunities to easier to, to be able to easily use that as opposed to maybe we're just copying and pasting in and out of something like an Excel spreadsheet over and over again. Um, and so I like that. So I've got a question for you, Zach. Yeah, um, sure. This is when the thunder is going to strike. It, it is when the thunder is going to strike because th this may be the toughest one yet. But right. no, so you talk a lot about marketing being education and, and you talk about what PLC Next is doing. How has the marketing, how has the education, how has the end user community taken to what you guys are doing with PLC Next? That's a really good question, Dave. I mean, it, 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 it kind of mirrors what I was talking about before where you know we started off on this 
product feature benefit type thing. And, you know, traditionally when you're looking at PLCs, people want to know, okay, how fast is it? You know, what kind of CPU is on it? Um, you know, how many IO can you connect? Uh, what, what interface does it use? It, what, what protocol is it on? And, and it's almost been like a teaching people how to think about things differently. So we get those questions and, and we have answers to all those questions. There's different modules, there's different things, but the real question is, what are you trying to do? Or what are, what is your PLC not doing for you today that you wish it could? Right. And that's an IRA, that's an IRA quote there. He loves that. And, it, and it's true. If you think about it in what you're currently doing, you're going to miss what you could be doing. So let's think about things you could be doing and find ways to get there because the limitations are now completely stripped off of what you're doing. There's no longer a, you know, I'm confined by ladder logic or I can only do structure or uh, structured text. It's now, what do I actually want to be doing and how can I find a way to do it? And, and to us, that has been really the educational piece to the field and to people using control is take, you know, take the shackles off, think about things a different way. How can, how can your controller be better for what you're doing? Like a lot of times you build your, your system around your controller and its limitations. Now let's open up the limitations and what could your system do? What, if you, if you had, you know, a, a million hours and unlimited technology, what would you do with your controller? Like, what would, and not even your controller, what would your machine do? I, you know, a lot of people are saying, I, I'd love to be able to remote in and do this. Cool. Well, I, you know what? There's an app on PLC Next that lets you VPN in and it's our MGuard app. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, they, you know, there's a million different things that you could do. And, and that's really been the educational piece for us is, is trying to get that engineer that's been beat down for the last 25 years saying, no, you can't, or you must do it this way to say, you know what, maybe I could do it a different way, or, or let's look at things a little differently. Or, you know, that, that guy that's coming out or that gal that's coming out of college with a, a comp sci degree saying, Hey, you know what, maybe I will go into industrial and do like controls. Like that sounds really cool because the hurdle before was, Oh, your comp sci, we're going to have to reteach you everything. Right. And now, now I, you know, I have somebody come in, I don't know Python. I don't know, you know, um, I don't know JavaScript. I don't know it very well. I know a little bit enough to make me dangerous. Um, but you know, somebody comes in and is like, Hey, I have this idea. We can do it this way. If I'm a traditional six eleven thirty one person, I'm going, yeah, let's do that. You know what I mean? I, I have this part done. Let's see how we can do this part and, and put them together. And, and that's really been the educational piece for us is, you know, oh, take off the blinders. Let's see what we can do. Yeah. And I think for me, if I may add to, mm -hmm. I guess, a list of important changes, and you mentioned this earlier, but it's data. And I think like, you know, the, the real next push is being able to collect data that actually impacts your business operations, right? And allows mm -hmm. you to either optimize your process, solve certain, again, like quality or safety challenges. But ultimately, I think, it's uh, innately, I would say, like difficult with the current systems in place to funnel data at the rate that it's growing, right? So oh, again, yeah. if you have a few points of I.O., like it's not problematic. But once you start getting every sensor that you want to send to your database, it becomes, I would say, like, again, from personal experience with traditional systems, yeah. very complicated. Yeah. Um, but yeah. You know, you talk about that, Vlad, and that's something I see a lot of is, is people saying sensor to cloud, which is, you know, for a home use, I, my air conditioning unit goes right to the cloud. 
out to my phone and I can see it and that's great. And, and there are going to be practical uses for that in industry. And, you know, but right now the infrastructure is such that if I try to do that on, you know, an ethylene cracking plant and I did it with every, you know, sensor I had in the field, that the amount of data from those sensors just going to a cloud probably wouldn't work right. So right. you have to think about things and, and, you know, how am I going to serve that up? Do I need just an edge device there to gather this data? Do I already have an existing supervisory system, a PAC, a DCS that has all this data? And now I just need to find a way to funnel that data to the cloud. Um, can I add new data in that I couldn't before? And that's kind of where we're finding, you know, this way around. I saw a question in here. Some people are saying, you know, what happens if you have a customer that's specced in hard on a, on a PLC? You know, we face that all the time, honestly. We're usually not the first choice that people think of when they think PLC. We're trying to change that. But, you know, there's some things that, a, you know, a, a Rockwell or a Siemens controller or just can't do. You know, it, it won't let you natively go to a cloud. Um, I know they're getting better at that. I think Siemens, I, I just saw, had something come out. But as they're getting better at it, we can. And, and so we can just be a part of that. Like, we don't have to be your controller. Maybe we're just the piece of your controller, that edge device that enables something to the cloud. And so we can get in and, and really help, help out where there are problems right now. And then as you get down the road and you have more opportunity, maybe someone sees that PLC next and goes, hey, you know what? I saw that on a machine before. I'm okay with that being in here. Um, you know, and then we have other, other companies like Yaskawa that's partnered with us and they're putting PLC next on their, their future platforms. So their, their whole future platform is going to be PLC next. So it, it, it's, it's a lot of the finding places where it fits. I know I'm not going to convert somebody completely over to one control system, especially if it's a huge, I mean, if it's a huge already held PLC account, I don't imagine I could walk in, you know, with, with a 2152 hardware over there and say, hey, this does this, this, and this, let's convert the whole machine. You know, it's, that's, that's kind of a pipe dream. But then again, we've had instances where we said some of the things it could do and they went, you know what, take this other stuff out. That's what we want to do. So it, it, yeah. it works both ways. If I may add, I guess, on, the, on that same uh, question, uh, when it, I guess having worked for end users, right, that use that machinery, at the end of the day, I think, people sometimes like focus too much on the, maybe some of the negative aspects and, you know, the common feedback that I get is, you know, again, I use that example, like the guy in the third shift does not know how to program this new hardware that we're going to put in, in our facility. Well, on the flip side, again, as we discussed, there's going to be many benefits that I feel outweigh that, um, that negative, right? There's going to be people that you can hire immediately because there is a shortage of engineers available that can support and work on the system, right? So it's always, I think, like evaluating at the end of the day, some of the, the changes that are going to happen. It's obviously not going to be from one day to the next, but you have to see, I feel, the entire picture. And it's a, I wouldn't say it's a short-term play. It's more of a long-term like decision that you get these tools deployed so that your engineers can start using them. And again, you're not going to start using everything on day one, but you're going to allow them to, first of all, experiment what makes sense for your facility. You're going to see what um, like that specific machine brings. And I think like, again, it's just important to consider everything when it comes to making that call. And as you said, it's not going to be, let's just convert everything 
and see what happens. It's going to be like a gradual rollout. Like let's experiment with this, see how it works, see what kind of things we can use, what applies to us. And then if that makes sense, you know, you're going to um, make the changes. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, I think that this is great conversation. I would like to point out, because we've talked a bunch about computer science majors uh, coming into the field. So I, I have absolutely in the past worked with people either fresh out of a computer science degree or a couple of years out of a computer science degree. I find that their ability to program is generally a lot higher as, as opposed to someone who comes in and let's say learns ladder logic and, and then tries to, to learn many of the other languages. And it is easier to teach someone who understands how to program, how to work with the industrial, how to work in the industrial sector and what a manufacturing facility does. Mm -hmm. And then it is basically a black box with processes. And if they understand the processes, they can appropriately code into, uh, into the environment. And so I have had very little very few issues with bringing, you know, computer science, computer engineers into the industrial space. And as we were talking about before, I think we're going to have to find ways to entice people who have much better programming skills than anyone other than Vlad in this conversation um, into the industry, because we're absolutely going to, to need to find ways to continue to expand the, the groups of people uh, working in industry in the near future. Absolutely. Uh, for instance, I my son's at STEM camp this week, so science, technology, engineering, and math. And I think tomorrow they're doing something with an Arduino. Like, it's something I would only have, ever have dreamed about. And I know he's going to come home and he's going to want to program. And that to me, that's that's terrific. And then, you know, I can show him, you know, we might put something on, on the PLC next and say, hey, it, it's the exact same thing. And that's, it, you're, only opening your, you're only opening yourself to more experienced programmers, more things that you can do and a more capable facility by doing this. No, no, absolutely. I appreciate that. So I've got a couple of kind of like rapid fire questions okay. uh, for you, Zach, as we're getting lightning close round. to uh, yeah, lightning round. Okay, so um, are PLC Next starter kits available if people are interested in them? So I believe um, that there are some still in stock on one of our online vendors, Allied Electric um, has some of them. They were in stock when I checked last week. Uh, you know, much like the rest of <laughs> the rest of everybody, you know, there is a, a, a drain on hardware right now. There's a lot of manufacturing happening and we are seeing a little bit of the, the slowdown in deliveries, you know, but we are trying our best to make sure that we can get these produced and, and out to people that need them. So I believe Allied Electric has those right now. Um, you may be able to find some in some of our other distributors. So if you go to phoenixcontact.com, um, you can look at any of your local distributors, see if they have them in stock or contact the local distributor that way. No, perfect. Uh, thank you for that. And then kind of like as a quick offshoot, do you guys manufacture in the Harrisburg facility? Yeah, we do. So uh, we have a, a number of different manufacturing centers in the, in the Harrisburg facility. We do a lot of cable manufacturing there. Uh, we do combination type of rails uh, for different solutions type things. We do all of our, or most of our IPC manufacturing there as well. So all the burn-in testing and that type of stuff. So, and they're, they're expanding, right? And we are actually expanding our manufacturing facility. I think, you know, is a, a long range three-year plan that was just put up the other day and it's only going to get more and, and bigger. We're probably going to have some terminal blocks manufactured there soon. So it, it's, we're expanding our, our U.S. manufacturing capability as well. 
and we have a, we have a yeah. whole engineering team here as well that does design a product as well. It's called we call it our RBU um, regional business unit, uh, but it's our our engineers literally well not in this house but literally down the hall from me from where I would normally be working. Um, they all it's a whole group of engineers that come up with new ideas like um, you know uh, a universal I/O platform. A lot of our our newest uh, unmanaged switch, the thinnest unmanaged switch you know, on the market that a lot of great ideas are coming out of the Harrisburg area right now. Very interesting. So, so the next time I'm through the Harrisburg facility during a weekday, I will, uh, I'll, I'll have to, most of the time I'm driving through Harrisburg, it's like eight 30 on a Friday night or yeah. like seven o'clock on Sunday night as I am heading either to or from Baltimore. But the next well, time say, I'm through on a weekday, I'll tell you what, if, if you get in Harrisburg and it's at nighttime, we have a third shift. You call me, I'll give you a tour. I'll make sure okay. you get a tour of the facility. Um, but if, for anybody okay. that's not from not, not it that doesn't drive to Baltimore or hasn't gone to Pennsylvania ever, if you're confused on where Harrisburg is, think of Hershey and it's yeah. right next to Hershey. So where all the chocolate is made, we're basically a stone's throw away from it. So no, perfect. Perfect. No, I appreciate that. So a couple other questions uh, for you, Zach. Um, we ask every week if people have a recommendation for a good book for other folks within the industrial ecosystem to read. Do you have Absolutely. a good recommendation? I have a fantastic recommendation for you. It's I actually have two. Um, so the first one is called Extreme Ownership. I don't know if you've you've read it before. This is more of a it's leadership book. Yeah, Jocko. Uh, I, I follow Jocko on his, his uh, podcast. I have four of his books. Um, He's a but, great guy. He's a very, like, uh, I'd say, like, no bullshit inspiring guy. You know what I mean? Like, really straightforward, a, a great guy. Yeah, as, as Jocko would say, check. You're right. Um, so, yeah, he, he he's fantastic. I found that that has helped me so much in just learning how to become a leader, you know, prioritizing what I'm doing. Uh, you know, he has all these uh, things you learn through the book and it, he, the way him and uh, Leif Babin, who's the, also the, the co-writer of it, they go back and forth between, you know, in application from Navy SEALs, what they've done in, 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 in uniform, and then also what they do at Echelon Front, which is their company where they, they help people and companies. And it's, I, I think it's a really neat dichotomy of going back and forth and seeing the parallels between the two and really, um, it, it, <laughs> Leading, leading from the front and the back at the same time, which is, is really cool. And then the second one, and I, I, I can't remember the author of it, but it's called Reinventing Organizations. Um, and this is a book more about how organizations run in an idealized way of running organizations. And it talks about, you know, that they use a whole color spectrum on different types of organizations and how they function. Um, but that kind of really opened my eyes to different ways of being a leader or a manager. Um, how to talk to people, how to work. And then also it makes me see when I go out to other customers or I'm, I'm educating somebody in the field, maybe how they are approaching things differently based on their leadership structure, wherever they're working at. So it helps me to find, you know, one where I can be the most productive in my company and be most productive in my group and enabling my employees to do the best they can, but also then enabling people within their own organizations to see beyond, you know, kind of the, if you will, the, the, uh, the horse blinders of maybe that's been put on them and, and see different ways of talking within their organization and, and finding ways to, to get to that person that's going to make the decision. 
So that's I, I, it's a fantastic book. It's it, it, make sure you're not getting that French unless you like French. That it, I think it was originally <laughs> written in French, French, and then translated. It's reinventing organizations. I was about I to it. ask because I, I did find the the French version first. Are you going to yeah. read it in French, Vlad? Probably not. <laughs> okay, so, so so Vlad does speak French. Um, oh yeah, I, I, okay. I, I, I don't know sense. if you were aware of that. It wasn't just I, it wasn't a joke of any strange language, Zach. <laughs> Vlad does speak French. So I, I'll go with the name here. I just found it. I looked it up. You could probably see the glow on my screen. So it's Frederick Lalou. I think L A L O U X. Did I pronounce that right? Sounds right. But the English version, it's different authors that I found, right? Arthur Young. Yeah, so it's been Ulrich. translated by, yeah, exactly. Okay, cool, good. I put the awesome. link in the uh, in the social media for anyone who's uh, interested. Uh, it's an interesting book. I guess uh, based on your description, I'll pick it up. No, no, th thank yeah, you, Zach. Definitely. And then w one last question on my side. If someone has missed the last hour and hasn't heard you talk about safety, hasn't heard you talk about PLC next, can you kind of give us the summation of, you know, who should reach out to you guys at Phoenix, who your ideal client is, who you're looking to help? Yeah. I, so let's, let's give a 30 second elevator here. So if you're in industrial technology and you're looking to change the way you do things, you want to be a leader within your company you want to do things the right way and you want to get into industry 4.0, reach out to us. We have all types of automation control. I mean, we're, we're typically known for power supplies, terminal blocks, relays, but you name it, we probably have it. So it, it definitely any industrial um, application, reach out to Phoenix Contact. We have local salespeople all throughout the world uh, and we'll help you get to your solutions uh, and, and make your machines better. We're going to have like to it. get better at our sales pitch, Vlad. Like this, this yeah. was the best. Uh, Ira, I don't know if Ira or who else at Phoenix is listening, but, but you need to uh, like get this man on a large screen television and, and give him a raise. If you go to YouTube right now, we have on our YouTube channel, a series called the control cabinet classroom, which uh, me and uh, my, my partner in crime, Karen, and also Jeremy Valentine, we do uh, uh, an educational series. So I'm already kind of on a big screen, depending on how big your monitor is. But you, you can always check out new episodes of that. We got some more coming up soon. Where can we, can we find it on YouTube? What's yeah, the so name? it's Sorry? on the Phoenix Contact USA YouTube page. And it's it's got its own playlist called Control Cabinet Classroom. I love that. I yeah, love I that. The, the blooper reel, I think, has the most views out of anything. But uh, there are way more bloopers than we actually put on there. I... <laughs> When the it gets hot, sweat, is always the best. I sweat through my makeup when I get very hot. So they had to redo <laughs> a lot of stuff. <laughs> oh, that, that's amazing. No, I appreciate it, Zach. Uh, Vlad, do you have any other, uh, other last questions? Well, I've got many, but I think we're <laughs> definitely over time, Zach. So I, I really appreciate you coming and talking to us. I think we'll definitely take you up on a, extended discussion on safety yeah. uh, we can you know even set up some kind of a marathon as the 30th episode since you've already committed to it it's gonna be <laughs> up to us to create the format but yeah hey <laughs> anytime you guys want to have me this has been wonderful it's been an excellent hour flew by and i i love the talk so you, you want to do anything you know if i could ever travel you know in the next couple months i think we're opening back up for travel here i know canada doesn't yep. want to have us yet um but uh, and that's just they, they won't open the border to me. 
because uh, I tried to go fishing this year and I couldn't go fishing. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like I'm going to miss that trip. But uh, yeah, anytime, anytime you guys want to talk about anything, I'm more than happy to be a part of this. So. I really appreciate it. Thank you again, yeah. Zach. And thank you everybody who's watching. Yep. Thanks everyone. Yes. Take thank care. you everyone. We will catch you guys next Wednesday. Same time, same place. Take care.